So this is part number 10 in our series going through the book of Philippians. We've covered in depth the first 11 verses of chapter 2, a chapter which, uh, as I have said, is very deep, very in-depth, one that deserves a lot of our attention, and such is why we've been going through it deliberately. I won't say slowly, I'll say deliberately. Um, Last time we saw sort of the logic as I would say, the logic of the gospel and how the logic of the gospel contradicts the logic of man. In that, it is all sort of centered and comprised in what we were really heavily emphasizing, which is the scandal, or we could say the foolishness of the cross. This idea that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, would come down and be obedient, as it says there in verse 8, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's this sort of plan, if you will, this logic of God that he demonstrates uh, not only obedience, but demonstrates the manner and the wisdom of God that remakes the world, that how he shows forth God's love for the world, namely through this uh, cross, which is a bold statement, as we noted last time. Bold statement even still today, but especially scandalous back in Paul's day as well. And it's interesting to me as we've gone through uh, these verses here that what has been really emphasized is, quote, the life of joy is, that we were talking about in chapter 1 is being here shown uh, nowhere better than in Christ, which shows us that the way we live the life of joy, we could say, is through humility, as has been emphasized, or we could call it this form of lowly love. Is that in verse 3, where he calls it uh, lowliness of mind. As he says there, let low, or, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. This has been Paul's theme. Uh, we've been emphasizing that, humility. So this, as you might know, the verses 5 through 11 are what is sometimes called the Christ song of Philippians. You could sort of give the same name to the first couple verses, the first maybe half chapter of Colossians chapter 1 as well. It's what is sometimes called the Christ hymn or the Christ song of those particular letters. And it's sometimes believed that this is something that they would sing or confess as a church publicly. And I think the hallmark, obviously, of these verses, as we've noted, is that word humility. He gives its, its essence. Just to remind you of this entire chapter, we have in verses 1 through 4, the essence of humility. Describing for us what humility looks like. And then in verses 5 through 8, we saw the embodiment of humility. Of course, who better embodies humility than the Lord Jesus Last week in verses 9 through 11, we saw the exaltation of humility, which is just that really scandalous logic where the the way to be exalted is first to humble yourself. And no one uh, sort of shows us that better than Jesus himself, of course. So, of course, at every turn in this chapter, Paul's been pushing humility onto these churchgoers at Philippi. This, I think, is what he's getting at where he says back in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what sweetens, as he says, that fellowship of the Spirit. Each esteeming each other better than themselves. Each giving each other the benefit of the doubt, as we've noted. Each loving each other in lowliness of mind. 
And it's fitting that Paul would close here with this exploration of humility that we have been exploring in Jesus Christ. So now, though... We proceed to sort of investigate, I would say, this is what I would call the the enterprise of humility. We have to ask that question. So uh, if he's giving us what humility is, showing us what it looks like, what's sort of the end game? What's God's enterprise by humbling his people? I think it prepares us for three things. I think this life of humility, this joyful humility that we have in Christ prepares us for three things. First of all, tonight, I want us to notice God's work in us. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. As you likely know from any good preacher, they would say we have to focus when we see a wherefore on what comes after and what comes before to see why it's therefore. And this is exactly what is happening here. I would say that this is probably the most crucial wherefore that we've ever seen in the Bible. Maybe that's an overstatement. But I think it's really important in this particular passage because a hastily read verse 12 uh, and, uh, might lead to a really grave misinterpretation of what Paul is trying to say. Because I would say, uh, one of the phrases that stands out to me in this particular verse is that last phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a pretty striking phrase, is it not? It might strike you if you just stopped at that period and be uh, somewhat uh, imperiled, somewhat awestruck, that Paul would be the one to say this. To be clear, uh, right out of the gate, I, I want to kind of go through this little phrase a little bit and just kind of pause on it. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say up front, Paul is not suggesting that the salvation of our souls is cooperative. That's not what he's indicating by this verse. He's not saying if you do a little bit, God will do a little bit more and then you're saved. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if you can just be fearful enough, if you just tremble enough in his presence, that's how you, quote, work out this salvation that he gives you. Now, that might be a really basic thing to assert. I think it's worth mentioning because I think still within the church, and maybe I should just say within myself, I won't speak on behalf of you, Oftentimes, the, the prevailing, I would say, downfall of the Christian faith remains this idea that we can add something to it, that we can make it a little bit sweeter, that we can get a little bit further into God's favor than we already are by, quote, working out our salvation, by doing just a little bit more good things, so to speak. I think that's innate to us. As we were noting last Sunday morning that the, the operative sort of framework of the human mind is what I am the master of my faith. I'm the captain of my soul. And so therefore we like to keep things close to the vest so to speak. We like to take control of our own eternities. And I think when we see these words we latch onto them because it's like yeah. Look what Paul said. We can save ourselves. <laughs> we just have to be suitably fearful enough and trembling enough. <laughs> I think verse 12 read, of course, out of context and out of what Paul's larger point is, 
is a breeding ground for really bad notions and misguided interpretations of what Paul is, number one, meaning by salvation, and also this whole construct that we can get into, which I don't want to really tonight, regarding sanctification. Because I think this is where some folks would go and say, look, sanctification is on you. You have to be really doggedly determined in this thing. Have you heard of that phrase? God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) That's a very, actually I won't say it. It's not a good sounding phrase. (laughs) But it's often sort of bandied about that, yes, God helps those who help themselves. And in fact, 52% of, quote, practicing Christians, according to a 2017 Barna research study, 52% said, yes, that is true. That God does help those who help themselves. And I think that this is what this verse is sort of tending towards. Again, a misguided reading, a bad contextualization of what Paul is saying can lead one to believe, if I just work out my faith enough, because God helps those who help themselves, right? Well, I would say wrong. <laughs> That's not what the Bible is about. You can search the scriptures, you will never find that phrase. You can go page through page, line by line. God never says he will help those if we just do a little bit. It's not there. And it's not here. I think the message of the Bible, as I would love to keep reemphasizing, is just this, that God helps those who can't help themselves. That's sort of the point, <laughs> That's why he sent his son to die for us, because we couldn't help ourselves. We're not the masters of our own fate. We've ruined that since the beginning. We've screwed that up since day one. He doesn't leave that into our hands to try and and get out of that sort of hole. And I think we ought to understand verse 12 in this way, that we cannot work out something that has not been first worked in us. Again, remember, Paul is talking to a group, an assembly of believers. He's, therefore, I would say, not referring to, quote, personal salvation when he says, work it out through fear and trembling. Actually, I would say he's referring to our public witness of our deliverance that's been finished in Christ. Work that out with fear and trembling. This fear is actually a word which is closely related to the reverence of, that you would have for a husband, a spouse. And that trembling actually refers to this, this idea of being religiously anxious. Knowing that you will never be able to fulfill what is required, but knowing also that it is your duty by faith to keep pressing forward. <laughs> So this is what we have here encapsulated in this working out. You're chugging along by faith, not by sight. Knowing that your deliverance is finished and we're, quote, working it out in the public sphere. This is what I would say. It's it's not in my notes. I should have put it in my notes just to be more sure about what I'm about to say. But this is what we could call the difference between a vertical sort of righteousness and a horizontal righteousness. This is something that I think has been very important and it's helped me understand what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian on sort of the earthly plane, so to speak. By faith, we are declared vertically righteous by God. It's something we receive. It's something that we accept by faith. 
This righteousness that comes down to us is what Martin Luther would call an alien righteousness. In that it comes from, uh, from uh, above us. It comes from outside of us. It's, it's a righteousness that we don't have anything to do with. This is what we call we are justified in the eyes of God. This is the salvation that's worked into us by the Spirit. At the moment of faith, we are declared vertically righteous. And then that righteousness that we are declared by vertically then informs, and I would say instills, and inspires our horizontal righteousness. That we then work out in front of others. It's our testimony before the world. By fearing and trembling before God, knowing that we live by faith and we also exercise our witness by faith. The horizontal doesn't win the vertical. You've already been declared that. The vertical just informs the horizontal, inspires, animates it, motivates it. Look at what we've been been saved from. This is what Paul is talking about. Declare before the world. Work out before the world the deliverance that you have because of Jesus. Verse 8. He became obedient unto death. The death of the cross. That's what's been working in to help us, I would say, to instill in us what we ought to be working out. That to me, I think, is what Paul is getting at. That to me is, is how I've been able to, quote, make sense, if you will, of the Christian faith. We are saved by faith. We are sanctified by faith. We live by faith because of Christ alone. It's all by faith. There's never a moment where I'm sort of adding another layer onto this idea of, of, of trying to win God's favor. This, again, I would say goes back to that idea. God helps those who can't help themselves. We don't add anything to the salvation that God has already finished in his son Jesus Christ. We can't get further into God's favor. You're declared righteous by faith upon repentance and belief in Jesus' obedience and perfect death. So again, Paul, I would say here, of course, is <laughs> he's not at all trying to change the gospel. Again, those who think that this working out is us helping ourselves is, are very misguided. He is actually, I would say, uh, trying to get into the mind of this church. And I would say likely uh, us as well. The, the posture for receiving the work God does in us. He's the one who's working in us. Again, note verse 13. It is God which worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the one working in us. And we, by faith, are receiving and humbling ourselves to that work. You know, we're stubborn folks. <laughs> Maybe you aren't. I'm, I, I am. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> we stubbornly receive the work of God. That's why it's so slow. So painstakingly slow. Because we're stubborn folk. We like to do things our own way. We like to do things in our own timing. And yet, what do we have that promise? Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it. For the next couple days, or before you mess up. No, that's not what he says. 
He's going to perform this work until the day of Jesus Christ. This work that he's beginning in you, this good work that he's working in you, as he says there, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, is a work that he performs until the day of the end of all days. And this is our beloved confidence that we have in Jesus, that he works in us always, constantly, persistently. And this is what God is working in us. It's this work that he changes us, keeps us, and sustains us. But hastening and moving on, number two I want us to notice. Number one, God's work in us. He's working in us. And now, number two, God's work on us. God's work on us. Notice verse 14. Paul says, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So here in these verses, Paul proceeds to really identify and specify what it is that God is willing and doing in us by referring now to this work that he performs on us. It starts with that imperative that Paul gives there in verse 14, do all things. And then he qualifies it without murmurings and disputings, without grumbling, without doubtings, without questions. Murmur is that is one of those words I think is what you would refer to in grammar class or is that, I don't know if that's the right name for the school and in, in, uh, the class in school but uh, it's that one of those words that you would call onomatopoeia which means you pronounce it the way or you spell it the way you pronounce it like what's another like buzz or bang the way you say it is how you spell it and the same thing with murmur it's just you're murmuring it's under your breath and that's literally what the word means. You're under your breath complaining and griping about something. And isn't that a good word for us stubborn individuals who are sometimes so frustrated with perhaps the way God is working on us? You know, they say never to pray for patience because God is going to put you in a moment where you need to be patient. (laughs) How often have I failed to learn that lesson? (laughs) God make me patient and then he puts me in a lot of traffic or something. (laughs) He puts me in a situation where uh, my impatience radar is going berserk. But this is the, the whole sort of point of it all. This is the sovereign enterprise of God. He's working in us to work on us, to shape and fashion us. I would say this to bring it even more into, quote, churchy language. He's resurrecting sinners into saints in order to, as he says here at the end of verse 15, to shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights to, therefore, in verse 16, hold forth the word of life. This is the amazing thing that God does in this, quote, enterprise of humility. This salvation that he's working in us is therefore to work on us. He's the one who makes us blameless. He's the one who makes us, as he says there, without rebuke. And he's also the one who guides us, as he says here, to walk as the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation that describes I would say every time that humanity has ever been in history. 
We've always been walking in a perverse and crooked nation amongst people who would rather love darkness rather than light. Jesus says that, that that's the nature of man. He loves darkness. He doesn't love the light. Such is why we are commissioned as the church, as God's people, that when he performs his work in us, he now performs his work on us, that we may go back into the darkness and hold forth this light which gives way and points those in the dark to the life that they can have in his son Jesus. You see, again, we're not really the point here. We're not really the purpose behind this. It is God and his work. He is the point. And we're not getting the credit or the acclaim for this blamelessness. He is getting the credit. This is the work he's doing on us while his spirit is working in us, shaping, fashioning us, molding us, performing this work that we might be those who, uh, we could say this, are like holy lenses who are just refracting the light of the world. I've always thought that that's a good way to understand our sort of purpose. You know, uh, some people might say, if we get saved, why doesn't God just zap us out of this life at that moment? Why doesn't God take us out of this dark, dismal, depressing world that's full of despair and full of sin's domain? It's because he has commissioned us. Can you believe that? He's commissioned us to be his lights. And it's not a light that we have in us. It's a light that we refract. It bounces off of us into the world. It comes from the light of the world. And this is the awesome thing about this work that God does on us. He's taking the initiative all the way. And again, it's us to receive by faith. Us to receive by faith as he resurrects us, to walk in the light of life as Jesus says in John chapter 8. And he does though by imparting his spirit to dwell in us. And this is the one thing that I've loved about studying the scriptures and going to these particular passages where we are informed of, of, quote, this horizontal life that we have amongst those in the world. That it is all because of the spirit who dwells in you. And you know, maybe you forget, sometimes us Baptists are good at forgetting that, that the spirit of God lives in our souls. He lives in you. He dwells in you at the moment of faith. You are temple of the Holy Ghost. And you know what his ministry is? The whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point you back to the cross. To point you back to Jesus' ministry to you. That's his job. When you think that you're doing really well in yourself, really well on your own. When you think that you're walking as lights according to your own volition. When you think that you are being very blameless or harmless, which is another word for pure, in and of your own accord. What does the Holy Spirit do? He reminds you, nope, that's Jesus. Nope, that's what the Son of God did. The Spirit's work is to always hold forth before our eyes the work of the Son. And this is how he fashions us. We could read a bunch of verses, but uh, we, we won't tonight. Romans and 2 Corinthians and John that talk about this fashioning of us, of our, of our beings into the image of the Son. And it's this Spirit who does that. 
constantly holding up the cross. Constantly holding up what the work that the Son has done for us. What a wonderful message. That that's what the Spirit is all about. That we are made blameless as we behold in faith the one who took the blame for us. I think that's a wonderful way to describe how it is that we live this Christian life. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith in the one who has already walked and lived for us, not of our own strength, not of our own accord. There's a great description of, the, of John the Baptist that Jesus gives in John chapter 5, verse 35, where he says that he was literally burning and shining with my light. And I've often thought, how did he do that? How did he sort of have this reputation of a burning, shining light? It's because he, like we can too. Now, again, let me, let me just back up and say this. All the descriptions of these apostles, they can also be descriptions of us. And what I mean by that is they weren't overly special guys. John the Baptist wasn't this guy that's so unique that that no one could ever do the things that he does. Maybe perhaps some of the miracles. But John the Baptist was a regular guy just like you and me. Flesh and blood, skin and bone. (laughs) A human with frustrations and and things that stressed him out and things that vexed him. I would say that what allowed him to be a burning, shining light was the fact that he knew that before all things, that this Jesus guy, his, his, his cousin, was the Messiah. Who was the light of the world. He's the light I'm refracting. He's the light that I'm shining forth. He, in his work, is the light that I'm burning and shining for. This is the work that God does on us. He rearranges our priorities. He rearranges uh, the things that we are passionate about in order to, here, shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's what God does on us. But lastly, I want us to notice verses 17 and 18. So we have God's work in us, God's work on us. Lastly, verses 17 and 18, God's work through us. Notice verse 17, yea, and if it be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Now, as we've been noting here, Paul's been talking about the life of humility, which is what we have been saying is the life of joy. Joy in humility is this joyful life of humble faith. And the fittingest end, I could say, to this particular life is the life that Paul here gives, or the end of life he here sort of describes. Which, if I had to summarize it in a word, it would just be one word, and that is acceptance. You can see and hear almost in Paul's voice this acceptance of God's purposes for him. Even, I might add, if that purpose involved his own death. You can hear it in the way he's talking. Yea, yes, if it be uh, that I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. 
I think this is what he's suggesting here. And I think that this is what has been the enterprise, if you will, of God's work of humility all along. That it brings us in faith to the point of acceptance of God's will for us. We can note in other passages. I Actually, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I just want to read this verse because, again, it's one that always stuns me. If you want to know what Paul was truly passionate about, what really got his juices flowing, so to speak, just read some of the last words that he gives to the church at Ephesus before he departs. So he's talking, actually I'm going to read in verse number 22. Acts chapter 20, look at verse 22. Behold, I go... Bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem. So he's departing, leaving the elders. This is his last couple words of his speech with the elders at Ephesus. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. I don't know what lies ahead. Save, verse 23, that the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But (laughs) none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You see, that's a man who has accepted God's will for his life, whatever that may be. He has, through the humbling of the Holy Spirit, through the work that God has done on him and in him, has now accepted the fact that his life isn't as meaningful if he's trying to save it, if he's trying to grasp it, if he is trying to white-knuckle it for himself. You see, that's what Paul is here saying. I don't count my life as something dear to myself. My whole life is encapsulated in what God can do through me. Which is, as he says there, testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Would that be my testimony? I pray that it can be yours as well. Because here Paul has accepted what is his future. And here in Philippians, even more immediately, it would be his end. And yet, verse 17 of chapter 2 of Philippians, he considers it joy. I joy at this and rejoice with you all. I think it's a remarkable testimony that he gives. Maybe, I sometimes like to imagine Paul humanly in the sense that when he wrote this, did he pause on that point and be like, yeah, I can, I can say that. <laughs> Was he surprised? At the fact that, yeah, I can say that and mean it. I don't know. I imagine that if I were one that was writing this, I would have to pause and think, is that really what I believe? And I think for Paul, the answer is yes. He wasn't writing anything fake. He wasn't bluffing. He wasn't trying to put on airs at the idea that, you know, he was this amazing power saint. (laughs) He had been humbled his whole life through the work of the Spirit, through the work of God on him and in him, through all of the travails that God had brought him through, such that now, at this point, he considers even his own death as a testimony to the joy that's found in Christ alone. 
Wow. And he says that even if that's the case, I know that my death will minister to you. And so for the same reason, for the same cause, you Philippians, you can joy and rejoice with me also. What an amazing testimony. And I think too that in every time that Paul talks about his own death, his own demise... He never sort of lingers on the really gloomy or melancholy aspects of that idea, that notion, that idea that he's going to lose his life. And in fact, it's the total opposite. He is actually trying to get them to see that this idea of death is actually his service that he's rendering to God. Such is what he means when he says, if I be offered upon the service, uh, the sacrifice and service of your faith. The word offered literally means there, poured out. It was what we could call a libation, a drink offering that was poured on the altar of sacrifice. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23 or Numbers 15. It's sort of the same uh, picture that Paul is here sort of giving you of this idea of his end. He sees it as himself being poured out on the altar of their faith. And so you see, again, Paul considers his life as nothing save that it is the work of Christ through him. His, his life, his efforts, his labors for the gospel are nothing but, we could say this, but a liquid tribute to the work in the blood of the Lamb. That's what he's offering. And it was always Christ's work which preceded Paul's work. Is again, notice as he says there back in verse 16. He says, uh, well, let's, I'll read the whole verse. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Which reminds me, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because I've always loved these verses. Because they get at the point, I think, of what we've been trying to say all along. This work of God in us informs and instills and animates the work that we do, that God does through us, I should say. In verse uh, 9 of 1 Corinthians 15, notice what Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I... The grace of God, which was with me. I've always loved verse 10. Because there's a way in which you could read this as if Paul is is sort of self-aggrandizing. He's bragging. I've labored more than all the other apostles. And rightly he has, historically, perhaps. (laughs) But I love how he sandwiches that statement between two very strong reminders. There's the grace of of God which was bestowed upon me and which was in me that allowed this labor to happen at all. The vertical informs and animates the horizontal. It's God's work in us and on us that allows us to do any type of work for his name. It's the work of God through us. We live by faith, not by our vigor, not by our endeavoring, not by our efforts. We live by faith. And I think that this is the enterprise of humility, if you will. It's 
God's humbling of us to the point of children. As he says in the Gospels, unless you become like children, you have no part in the kingdom of God. It's the work that brings to bear the work of the Son. And it allows us to cling to Christ as our joy in life and death. This humility that he has put before us is that which, I would say, tenderizes us to receive this work. The work that says done in and on and through us according to his spirit. May we be a church that walks and lives in faithful humility with the Son of God and his spirit. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Let us bow and pray.